All right, uh, let's get started without further delay. I'd like to welcome Dr. Ash uh, Suchdeva. He's the director of our interventional pulmonology group here at uh, university, and uh, he'll be talking to us on airway and thoracic procedures. Uh, and to those from afar listening in, uh, sorry for the delay, and um, should be on time in the future. All right, thanks. Thank you, Mike, um, for the opportunity. And uh, I tried to accommodate all your requests and demands. Um, so I don't have any disclosures pertaining to the uh, topic I chose or topic Mike chose for me. Um, and in full disclosure, um, I haven't done a cricothyroidotomy yet. Maybe I'll have an opportunity soon. Um, I'm not going to talk about uh, intubation and difficult airway. Um, I'm not discussing bronchoscopy in ICU, my favorite topic, no, um, or medical thoracoscopy. And the last but the least, I don't want to talk about Foley catheter placement in morbidly obese, which I always get a request in the ICU when I'm on night call. Um, so I'm basically going to talk about three um, very useful procedures, um, mostly in life-threatening situations or erective uh, situations. And I think the oldest procedure that we know uh, to be talked about is cricothyroidotomy. There's a landmark paper. No, it's actually from Google. It's not published. But a very interesting concept where two anatomists talked about um, getting some untrained medical students and do a bystander situation where they asked them to do a cricothyroidotomy using a scalpel and a ballpoint pen. So very innovative idea, very interesting to teach people how to react in a situation like in a restaurant where you always have a knife and somebody has a ballpoint pen. So um, I think uh, they did pretty good, but there was 30% incidence of cartilage injury when they looked back. And uh, again, understand this was uh, embalmed cadavers where the everything is rigid and so on. So what they did was give the medical students or untrained bystanders a scalpel, uh, taught them some anatomy lectures or gave them some anatomy lectures and um, dismantled the ballpoint pen and it worked as a basically a tracheostomy tube. <laughs> Nevertheless, the oldest reports of cricothyroidotomy were from uh, Chevalier Jackson. Um, unfortunately, he condemned the procedure and since 1921 until 1976, nobody wanted to pursue this procedure or even talked about it. The biggest challenge was that he did the procedure in patients who had active infection, laryngitis, where your cricothyroid membrane is also involved, tumors of the upper airway, or significant edema for whatever the cause may be. Essentially, it was upper airway obstruction. And when you have a laryngeal pathology and you cause another injury, there's a higher likelihood of having stenosis. And that's exactly what he found. It was a major cause of subglottic stenosis. Nevertheless, people in Denver uh, first published um, in 1976. These were cardiothoracic surgeons who actually felt the need for a higher uh, tracheostomy tube because they, all these patients had median stenotomies and they were worried about cross-contamination. So they actually published a series of 655 patients and the duration of the cricothyroidotomy tube was from you know, a few hours to months. They had a very low complication rate, almost about 6%, which you could compare with any um, usual tracheostomy, surgical or non-surgical. There was only one procedure-associated death. And in their series, now this, this is somewhat, they are massaging things. They said they didn't find any subglottic stenosis but they had five patients that required resection of tracheal stricture. It was not clear whether these were distal at the cuff site or not, but nevertheless, five out of 60, 655 is a very low number and comparable to any post-tracheostomy um, uh, stenosis cases. This was a programmatic approach by two cardiothoracic surgeons. Big difference when you start opening a procedure to everyone. So. Of course, um, their conclusion was that it could be routinely used in patients of similar population, and the advantage being uh, its simplicity and absence of cross-contamination. Um, voice change was the most frequent complication. 
Now, this is expected, and that's actually worrisome because that suggests there was some degree of rear injury, granulation tissue, inflammation, and that will vary on each individual patient. This was actually a meta-analysis done by uh, Cole et al., and they talked about um, the challenges. But in their, C in their review of three good uh, published papers, they only found a 2% incidence of subglottic stenosis. Of course, the contraindications include if somebody has a prolonged intubation, um, airway obs obstruction following extubation, which means you have a significant injury to the upper laryngeal structures, including cricoid, uh, cricothyroid membrane, uh, false vocal cords, true vocal cords, and so on. And if you had laryngeal pathology of any kind. Following uh, the publication in 76, somewhere around in 1987, Different guys, but from the same institution in Denver, reviewed the records of 1,000 patients who received ventilator assistance and cricothyroidotomy as a procedure of choice. They used um, the original criteria laid out by, and the technique laid, by, laid out by Brandington and Graus, and what they found was there was a higher incidence of airway stenosis than either of the procedure it was meant to replace, which included um, row tracheostomy, row meaning second, third space, um, and endotracheal intubation. They were pretty, uh, um, their recommendation was not to be uh, used as a, as a primary procedure. Again, um, there's a publication few years earlier, almost a decade earlier, where people said, wait a minute, um, I know cricothyroidotomy is bad, but what about a patient where we can't um, uh, have, can't palpate structure in the neck, they have trauma, C-spine is immobilized, nobody's willing to take for a tracheostomy either open or, um, or there's a higher risk of tracheostomy open versus percutaneous. Uh, so these guys looked at their retrospective review. These were two trauma surgeons who protocolized their pathways for um, difficult neck anatomy. And they draw the comparison with uh, a cohort of patients who underwent tracheostomy. There were about 18 patients, and seven patients died unrelated to the airway. Again, it's very difficult to comment there because if you have a smaller airway, a size 6 tube, and you get a pneumonia because of secretion clearance impairment, how do you define that, uh, or how do you attribute the causality there? It's somewhat challenging. But nevertheless, the, uh, the authors published this. Um, this is one of the patients they talked about who has no neck, and the cricoid cartilage, even with extension, was palpable at the sternal notch. And whether you do an open trach, um, percutaneous trach, um, a cricothyroid, in their opinion, was a better procedure. Um, in their series, small series, um, there was a low complication rate, and the authors still believe that it's a reasonable option in select patients. But this is not what we talk about when we talk about cricothyroidotomy in patients uh, in our elective or emergent situation, and I think that concept is somewhat evolved. When we talked about uh, urgent procedure, all you need is a scalpel and non-panicky hands and brain. Um, you have a modified kit, which is a percutaneous kit. Uh, you could use a syringe or angiocat or a needle to aspirate air. You know that you're in the airway. Uh, this is a saline, not a lidocaine. You don't need lidocaine in an emergent situation. And then you have a dilator, which is passed over a guide wire, and you have a tube. Over here, you have a dilator. You have a hemostat and an endotracheal tube. There's a very nice video that I couldn't show. This is from University of Maryland Emergency Room Physician. It's a 50-second video on YouTube where that, they use a very simple concept. You have a bougie, which is always available. You have a scalpel. You pass, you make incision after palpating the cricothyroid membrane. You pass a bougie. You can ventilate through that, and then over that bougie, intubate the patient with an endotracheal tube. Very simple, 40 seconds. But be mindful if you're using the kit, uh, dilator kit, don't leave things behind. This is a patient who underwent a cricothyroidotomy as an emergent procedure um, at BWMC. Uh, two years later, presented with our pulmonary consult service for uh, abnormal CAT scan that showed some foreign body. Um, he never knew if he had any you know, challenges with it. He had no symptoms. 
but this is what we found. It was embedded quite nicely, and we were worried that it may be eroding into the pulmonary vein, but it was easily extractable, and this is the guide wire. The next question is, how, how do we train uh, residents, fellows, and attendings who are going to deal with uh, emergent situation? You know, this is, I haven't done a cricothyroidotomy over 12 years. Not that I didn't have an opportunity. We actually modified our protocol um, when I was at St. John's Mercy to do a percutaneous trach directly. So if you were able to bag, we would just do a perc trach. Um, we never published that. Some other authors have published that, but again, it's institution specific. It's not part of the algorithm in any anesthesia literature, but I'm just saying people deviate based on the institution. So the big question is what are the metrics to assess skill sets, especially cricothyroidotomy? Is it time, time to ventilate, time to get the airway? Um, what is the minimum number? And what is the appropriate retraining interval if I start the training today and how soon will you forget to do things? So it's not about who can do it. Anybody can do anything. It's about how you maintain the competency and so on. So there are at least two papers talking about it, uh, both in anesthesia literature. In one of the studies shown here, there were 30 participants. So they, they were given opportunity to um, uh, do a cricothyroidotomy after educational didactic ses session, uh, repeatedly in a cadaver, uh, or sorry, a mannequin. And what they found was that if you define your success as uh, lung inflation less than 60 seconds, it took almost five attempts. In another study, there were 106 anesthesiologists where they cut down the time of, uh, or def definition of the time to success to 40 seconds, and again, they demonstrated that it was the fifth attempt that everybody was showing a competency based on that de definition. But the bigger question is how short of an interval you need to retrain, and in that study, uh, it was almost a month. So people would forget if they haven't done a, per, uh, a cricothyroidotomy um, in a month time. Going a little bit lower, uh, talking about percutaneous tracheostomy, uh, not just to you know talk, put in a prep for what we do, but importantly, I think there's always going to be a question on the board related to that, um, either in terms of uh, risk of infectious complication, bleeding, comparing the evidence uh, with the surgical open trach. Also, there would be a question related to simple complications that a critical care physician should be or is expected to manage, um, and I'll show you a few things. Um, but prior to you go further recommending a procedure, I think it's very important to understand, is the procedure needed? I think the fundamental concept... Uh, and everything I'll talk about is not the procedure, but is the procedure needed and what do you need to accomplish it without causing a high uh, incidence of complication? This is a paper from across town, John Hopkins, where they actually try to look for predictors of short-term mortality in patients undergoing PDT, or percutaneous dilatation tracheostomy. Um, what they found was that in-hospital mortality rate was 30%. Um, the length of the stay varied from two weeks, uh, 30 days, and they stratified that or developed quartiles to assess. But essentially, the bottom line is 30% of these patients died in the hospital, same hospitalization. So it is very important to talk to the patient about the procedure that is maybe meaningless. The predictors of higher mortality in their uh, uh, their paper or their um, uh, review was older age, oncological diagnosis cardiogenic shock, and ventricular assist devices. If they included VAP and trauma cases, those were the actually ones who actually walked out of the hospital and they had higher survival. So just to help you understand that if a procedure is needed, you need to talk to the family uh, about the goals. Um, of course, everybody knows surgical procedure is done in the OR. Percutaneous can be done in the OR or at bedside. It's a little bit larger skin incision, smaller incision. Uh, involves general anesthesia. People, the proponents of PDT talk about that it can be accomplished with mild sedation, but essentially it's a deep sedation with neuromuscular blockade, and we tend to use or choose drugs based on their time of action, clearance, and so on. Um, people have talked about the cost. Of course, anything that's done in the OR is costly to the taxpayer, no question. But if you add 
a surgical trach at bedside, it actually is cheaper than a percutaneous trach, and not many people know about it. People talk a lot about perc trach and this and that, but if you look at the open surgical trach is cheaper because you don't require a kit, and the kit is a few hundred dollars, so. And you don't bill for bronchoscopy when you're doing an open trach. So uh, there are caveats there. Um, this is actually a prospective evaluation of 500 cases where they actually used an older cook kit which had a multiple dilator technique. And then uh, as they were evolving, they were using the single dilator kit. In all cases, they use endoscopic visualization, and it's strongly recommended to prevent any inadvertent complications, uh, road trachs, um, and to make sure that you do a second timer to understand that the um, entry site is in the desired tracheal ring. The overall complication rate was very low. Um, more than half were considered minor. Of course, in um, most of the percutaneous tracheostomy studies, you'll find um, these subgroup of patients excluded, including children, unprotected airway, emergencies, midline neck mass. Um, and of course, if you can't palpate the structures, you've got to do it open. If you can't palpate cricoid, the landmark site, to uh, understand where you're going to, uh, your entry site is going to be, you're not moving forward with the procedure. And if you can't correct the coagulopathy, uh, you're not doing the procedure. In their study, there was absence of pneumomediastinum and pneumothorax, which is remarkable. And I don't anticipate if you are using endoscopic visualization, why would you get that? You can still get it because of the ventilator uh, high peak airway pressures when you're doing bronchoscopy and so on, and if, you have, uh, if the patient protoplasm is bad and so on. So in, in this large series, the authors concluded that this was as safe as surgical uh, tracheostomy. Um, again, the folks across town at Hopkins um, uh, looked at the efficiency of uh, percutaneous tracheostomy offered by interventional pulmonary service um, compared to the surgical service. There they have a, a ENT service doing perc tricks as well, which is unique um, at, um, in terms of institutional specific protocols. There was no statistical differences in the percutaneous trach between surgical or IP group, there was a trend towards increased efficiency in PDT done, uh, PDT done by IP group just because they had a nurse practitioner who would evaluate the patient and all these patients, 100% of them got a tracheostomy in 48 hours. So it's a lot of cost savings to the hospital if you can um, bring an efficient system, which doesn't, has nothing to do with who is doing it, how the system is defined. Um, the question is, is it really safe? There's been a lot of uh, talk about uh, it shouldn't be done, the complications are bad, when badness happens, blame happens, and so on. But uh, Vanderbilt guys did a very good job of publishing their 3,000 procedures. And I think, um, I forget what's his name, uh, no, over here. Jose Diaz came from Vanderbilt, right? I think he was part of some of the protocols uh, that he wrote. But essentially, again, it's a protocolized approach. You have 3,000 patients, um, and authors evaluated all major airway-related complications, procedure-related deaths, and incidence of post-tracheostomy stenosis. And in their series, uh, almost 15% were above BMI of 35. We actually, from St. John's Mercy, published a large series of almost 40 patients with BMI above 40 um, uh, 10 years ago. Um, talking about the safety of percutaneous tracheostomy, and there, there are some modifications uh, that you do. But So really, it is safe. Um, major complications were noted in only 0.38% or half a percent. I think it's less than my bronchoscopy complications when I tell my patients that you have a almost 1% risk of pneumothorax, you have almost 2% to 3% risk of bleeding, which is controllable, and all those things. There were three airway losses and one bleeding, and this is something that can be minimized to 0% error by um, working with your um, critical care airway team or anesthesia airway team, whosoever in an institution is the key personnel. There were two tube occlusion dislodgement events and resulting in two deaths, and again, that's also preventable uh, with education, education, education. 
and then there was very low rate of tracheal stenosis. Again, this is a select group of people doing the procedures again and again and again and minimizing the risk of their uh, stenosis. My mentor had to do a deposition about um, a tracheal stenosis because somebody started the blame game. But um, This is a... Um, Actually, I was trained with Ciaruya Rhino, and it's actually more improvised. I just wanted to put some pointers about you have an uh, entry of the needle under direct bronchoscopic guidance. You pass a guide wire and the punch dilator. Remember, the punch dilator is a straight dilator. It's a short, straight dilator. So your hands have enough force to push it down, and there is no resistance. If you don't point it quarterly is you are going to push it through the posterior wall. And that's the most common reason everybody gets excited. Patient has good oxygenation, ventilation. There's no rush to do. This is the most critical part of the procedure. Um, the recommended uh, entry site is between second and third. That's preferable because if you develop stenosis, those are the ones that are easier to handle. But first and second is acceptable as well in patients where you, uh, going deeper is going to increase the risk of uh, being closer to the nominate vein. Thereafter, you actually pass a bolstering catheter, and over that, oh, this is the bolstering catheter, the white one over the guide wire, and then you do the uh, single dilator, which is a curved dilator, and then you wrote the tracheostomy uh, over a smaller dilator and advance it. I'm going to just give you uh, two minutes um, understanding of what is the role of operator and anesthesiologist. Nobody's going to ask you, but if you um, go to another institution and want to develop uh, a tracheostomy service, you've got to know about it. And it's boring, but unfortunately, that's what it is. Um, you've got to know the landmarks. Um, you know, you've got to know where the cricothyroid membrane is, the cricothyroid cartilage, and the thyroid gland. Um, understand that in all tracheostomies, one-third of the time, at least in percutaneous, you're going to go through the isthmus of the thyroid almost one-third of the time. So um, my mentor used to ask me a multiple-choice question, and that's the only multiple-choice question in my talk is, uh, is thyroid gland uh, choice A, vascular organ, choice B, very vascular organ, choice C, very, very vascular organ, and choice D, very, 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 very vascular organ. So the choice D is correct answer. And the point is, it is a vascular organ, but you tamponade it with the, the tracheostomy itself because that's a little bit bigger than the, uh, the dilator you use. You're going to look at the gas exchange hemodynamics coagulopathy, and the bronchoscopy is, is a key person in this procedure because they're going to do the same. They're going to assess the airway, um, make sure the, they have, um, the patient is on adequate ventilator support, uh, the mode such as um, uh, volume control mode or PRVC, whichever you want to use. Um, definitely not APRV, but um, you could do that too. Um, but our standard is volume control mode to deliver adequate volume, prevent hypercapnia during the procedure, especially if somebody has traumatic brain injury or uh, is in neurocritical care ICU. Circulation and sedation and allergy, of course, all basics of any procedure. You've got to know how to set up the cart. You, ha you have to have monitoring IV fluids. You may want to initiate vasopressor in somebody who's 10 with um, drugs and use a neuromuscular blocker that is the shortest acting um, and look for renal failure, things like that. Of course, simple things delay the procedure the most. If you don't have syringes, bite block, Caesar, bag, bag and mask, collar, things like that. The, in general, the procedure is for the trach part, does the trach part, and the bronchoscopist guides the sedation, paralytics, patient positioning, uh, discussion with the respiratory therapist and the staff. A bronchoscopic examination is performed, and the, um, the bronchoscope with the endotracheal tube is retracted to maintain a view. The, we usually deflate the cuff a little bit and then drag it back as it hits the vocal cord, you meet a resistance. So that's the best way not to inadvertently dislodge the tube, and you have to be prepared to reintubate and make sure if somebody is difficult airway, you have all the difficult airway needs or anesthesia support. Oh, don't do it. Do it open. <clears throat> 
Um, the role of the operator is to um, make sure you are directing and you're focused on the procedure and there are no distractions. It's almost three-minute procedure, but if you have distractions and other things and you're not focused, it's going to be wrong and wrong and um, never-ending procedure. Even though the patient is sedated, paralyzed, I use local anesthesia, sometimes with topical epi. Um, with the use of ultrasound, you can actually identify any vessels crossing over. So, of course, make good judgment there uh, not to uh, lacerate those. The needle with bevel caudal is inserted. Um, some people are very obsessive about it. So, um, And you confirm it with getting an air back and... Many times you will cause a puncture of the posterior wall that is meaningless. What we don't want to, what we really want to avoid is a laceration of the posterior wall and causing a TEF. So punctures usually seal without any difficulty. Um, you're going to observe the needle puncture, puncture and its tra trajectory to see it's not going down and um, in the wrong direction. It's not facing up to the bronchoscopist either and you pass a guide wire and uh, so forth. Um, people who have trained me were very obsessive, so I carried on the obsession. Uh, the cuff needs to be reinflated and then air sucked back so it is very streamlined. And then mind the gap, there should be no gap because then you're gonna have trouble advancing this when you are done with your um, dilatation. Um, a word about the complications. I think this is very important. The next two slides are going to be, you're going to be asked questions around it. Um, this was published by Steve Trottier who at, from St. John's Mercy who first looked at this. Um, the bolstering catheter, which was advanced over the guide wire, did not have a ridge in the initial uh, kit. So, or it's called a guiding catheter. This is the guide wire, but this, I call it a bolstering catheter. So what was happening was when you advance a dilator, there was nothing stopping it, and the guide wire is flimsy, and there is a force from top, and everything gets compressed, and this goes directly just like the punch dilator and was causing posterior wall injury if you are not careful. But in the newer kits, you'll see there is a small ridge over here that holds on and doesn't let the dilator go forward. And that actually helps you give direction and prevent the posterior wall injury. In general, the cause of difficult insertion is arrogance, meaning uh, not, not listening to simple things. If your skin incision is poor, that will act as a resistance at the primary incision site. If your neck was not extended, the rings are not going to be uh, open up. If you didn't do adequate dilatation, um, it's very hard to pass a bigger size tube in uh, um, in any anatomical uh, or any procedure that requires dilatation. And of course, if it's inadequately lubricated, um, you're not going to you're going to run into some challenges. Incorrect choice of trach tube. It does happen. Um, I didn't put any slides related to that. And if you did not do uh, proper balloon deflation. Uh, during the withdrawal of the tracheostomy tube, you're going to run into obstruction. This is another good example, and I think one of the patients in our ICU experienced this um, after a tracheostomy. And be mindful that uh, patients who have a tracheostomy also have a chronic inflammatory state. They have sepsis, they have COPD, they have something that was already debilitating them to lead to a respiratory failure. Very commonly, you see a posterior wall bulge, and during rapid changes in uh, intrathoracic pressures, during coughing or dyspneic episodes, this posterior wall bulges into the um, bevel of the tracheostomy tube, especially if there's a force dragging this way, and the tracheostomy tube is pulled down, and this will drag it upwards and posteriorly. This is not coaxial. In the picture, it looks coaxial because the authors are trying to do a bronchoscopy and pushing it down. So what happens is this gets sucked in during a very negative pressure, and once it gets sucked in, unless you do a positive pressure bag or take the tracheostomy tube out and change it, nothing changes. Uh, um, actually, prior to this publication, Steve Trottier sent in a um, communication to chest uh, with a similar thing happening on their patients, and this would get better immediately after changing the tracheostomy. 
But what's happening is as you do a bronchoscopy, you push the tube down or down, and this rim gets further down, and you miss on the area of trauma that a patient is experiencing with repeated uh, insult and uh, apposition of the distal end of the trachea. So the only way to identify is to pull back and look for these signs of granulation tissue. And if patient goes into acute obstructive syndrome, you, um, if it's a fresh trach, you can give a very strong positive pressure. That should usually dislodge it or pass a bougie or a suction catheter. That should dislodge the posterior membrane gently so not causing perforation. Don't use anything traumatic. The red rubber catheter usually doesn't get it. So the question usually will revolve around changes in peak pressure. Patients suddenly became hypoxic. Um, they'll talk about tracheostomy tube done day seven, day eight to give you some leeway to say, yeah, you can change the trach and so forth. Be mindful of that. But this is a, something you see very commonly, and people start doing chest tubes, uh, start doing things, uh, and... Uh, So moving further, um, a very interesting topic that an international pulmonologist has neuro <laughs> in, is the managing of life-threatening hemoptysis. And, and I joke about it because um, uh, I think we have a role in uh, helping with localization and stabilizing the patient. But um, most of the time, it would be the interventional radiologist who's going to help us. And we can then, in select group of patients, um, uh, show that we have some role. Uh, not to take over the credit from you know uh, any pulmonologist, uh, but uh, those are the literature and the facts. Unfortunately, there is no uniform accepted cutoff value, and I think the term massive hemoptysis is misleading, uh, based on volume. What what it what you want to know is is this a life threatening bleeding? Is somebody going to die whether it's 50 cc of blood or 100 cc of blood in their airway? If somebody is in uh, bad ILD chronic respiratory failure, I don't think they can take any more than 100 cc in their airway, and they'll die. So they need urgent intubation, even if the bleeding has stopped until you have clearly defined the etiology or fixed the problem. Um, a healthy adult can tolerate up to 200 ml an hour because they are pouring it out, but there will be a limit to it. Um, some people have defined as more than two episodes of moderate hemoptysis. Um, but again, that's the, the question is, is that moderate or is it that moderate is life-threatening? If it is life-threatening, no matter what, that is a massive hemoptysis. It's just like having a massive PE. It's not defined based on radiographic characteristic. Everybody gets fooled talking about it's a big PE in the CAT scan. No, it's the um, right ventricular dysfunction, troponin leaks, EKG changes, shock, all those determine the mortality, not the radiographic characteristics. Um, further, it's unreliable. Patients may tell you uh, different things at different times, uh, ability to quantify blood when you see in panic that there is blood. You know, have you ever had hemoptysis? No. But, you know, my friend had a TB, and he had an upper lobe uh, cavity lesion. Of course, I was in the same dorm with him. Um, and he coughed the blood. It was like, um, you know, it was a medical student, but I could see, you know, everybody was terrified. Uh, we had never seen blood before. Um, so it is a scary. And if you have any patient die of bleeding in front of you doing a bronchoscopy, it is more, I definitely say you get a PTSD from it, no question in my mind. You have to just see once. Um, So when a patient comes with massive or life-threatening hemoptysis, you've got to think about things in the history which are very, very important and will help you with um, defining or uh, designing your algorithm or approach to localization and diagnosis. So, of course, they, if somebody has TB, uh, you're talking about Ramusen's aneurysm. Uh, that could also be a pulmonary artery aneurysm. Uh, Espigiloma, usually it's a bronchial artery. Bronchiectasis, whether it's CF or non-CF, usually it's a bronchial artery. Malignancy could be endoluminal tumor, but uh, many a time if it's a parenchymal tumor, it's usually a bronchial artery or a non-bronchial artery systemic uh, branch, likewise in lung abscess. And I think we have seen all of these at this institution in past one and a half years, including vasculitis, whether it be um, granulomatous angitis or Bechet syndrome. Um, one of um, 
our patient a few years ago with Betcher's disease, 36-year-old guy, came with hemoptysis during the bronchoscopy. Um, there was a temptation, and the temptation led to um, uh, brushing off a pulse tile, and within three minutes, the guy was dead, despite everything. So be mindful of what you are entering into. Uh, pulmonary AVM, um, there was a recently a case of hereditary hem hemorrhagic to injectasia leading to a hemothorax. Usually it's to hemoptysis, but um, Rick Burroughs went in and um, treated that. Psychosis usually is either um, uh, an allergy. The analogy would be aspergilloma from cavity region or a bronchiectasis. Um, and these are rare, but uh, bronchoartery aneurysm, pseudoaneurysm from PA catheter, and we see that. And aortobronchofistula are usually almost always fatal. Um, understand that source of bleeding in almost 90% of the patients will be bronchoartery. Um, or it could be non systemic, um, non bronchoartery or systemic branch from intercostal internal memory, or there is another reason to have a collateral. If there's a reoccurrence of bleeding, it's usually the, um, the non-bronchial systemic artery, and be mindful. So if you have sent a patient to IR, they come back stable, two days later again have, they need to go back because you have identified a problem. And um, bronchial artery embolization is not 100% perfect. There's about 70 to 80% success rate. And there's almost 15 to 30% of the patients will have recurrent bleeding. So what is the role of... Um, um, three most common diagnostic tests in localizing. Uh, chest radiograph, almost always done, very easy to obtain. It's a good study, but understand that the positive diagnostic yield is about 50%. And if you look at the published data from Hurt and Armin Ernst, uh, there was a quarter of patients who actually showed normal radiographs, but these all had endobronchial tumors. So it's very hard to pick up an endobronchial tumor um, on a... The next question is, what about the CT scan? Actually, the multi-detector CT scan is extremely valuable. So, you know, if I had to design a protocol, my protocol would be patient comes with massive hemoptysis, get intubated, go to the CT scan, have the IR team look at it, do the intervention right there itself. That would be the simplest, fastest way. Now, um, that doesn't happen all the time, and you need to stabilize the patient, and that's where we come in to help but with the MDCT, this was actually a 16-detector uh, row, and now we have almost, uh, I think all the scanners here are 64 detectors. So if you have done a, well, uh, uh, a very good contrast study, you're almost always going to pick up a bronchoartery abnormality or even a non-bronchoartery abnormality. Uh, we have a patient that I'm not showing here who actually had a pulmonary artery origin, and that was picked up on the CT and underwent uh, stent placement and walked home, eventually died many months later because he had a malignancy. But um, the role of the bronchoscopy is um, debatable. Now, if you look at the uh, radiology literature, they will say, no, get to the CT scan first, which is very appropriate. But you can get the patient to CT scan always. You need to stabilize and make sure the airway is protected, and you can oxygenate ventilate the patient. Do we need isolation? Um, there's no literature supporting a double lumen intubation tube. If you can block one side or ventilate one side, that's equally good. And double lumen intubation um, makes things difficult because there's no good lumen to suction the blood. And then there's no way to do any intervention uh, if need be. So the purpose is to stabilize the patient, and that I want to drive the point um, and it's the isolation of the involved airway. Localization of the anatomical site can be very difficult. It's best done with a CT angiogram. But if you have, if you act and you do urgent bronchoscopy and there's only one rope that's pouring out blood, you can isolate. And the overall diagnostic accuracy is about less than 50% in the published data. That doesn't mean it has no role, but you've got to understand that. You could actually control the hemorrhage and treat a patient with endoluminal treatment while you are uh, proposing interventional radiology to go and do an angiogram and assess better. Or if sometimes patients need samples and you can obtain that too, that can be done by interventional radiology. So I'll give you a small case history. Um, this is not going to be on the boards, but give you a perspective of um, how to progress. 
so we have a 62-year-old woman who diagnosed with squamous cell CA, which is, again, a, a, a higher likelihood of having hemoptysis than a, um, non, um, than a non-squamous cell. And I didn't talk about the, uh, the issue with bevacizumab uh, and hemoptysis. Uh, that is, again, all the patients with squamous cell were excluded from the trial for this very reason. And we have seen almost seven or eight patients with squamous cell during the treatment with massive hemoptysis. So that's a separate uh, discussion. But she pre- the patient presented with the life-threatening hemoptysis during her break from chemotherapy after receiving six cycles. She was intubated and transferred to the MICU. And I could not procure a video, which was a beautiful video made by Nirav Shah, and um, neither Ed Pickering or Shah had those video, but it was sent to me uh, at 10.30, and the question was, what do we do? It was a brisk bleeding, and the CAT scan images suggested this, and I'll just walk you through those. So there seems to be a soft tissue density there, and then the superior pulmonary, uh, I think it's this inferior pulmonary vein right there. And our concern was whether this is a pulmonary vein bleed because the blade, the bleeding was pretty brisk. And uh, the best thing to do was she didn't have much coagulopathy. The best thing was to just isolate it, uh, tamponade with endobronchial tube blocker, and then think over uh, to get the patient to um, uh, interventional radiology. Now, this was a CT angiogram, and they could not identify any abnormal vasculature other than what I pointed out. There was a concern, but we didn't know the integrity of any structures there. So she did undergo angiogram. She was taken down, and um, um, again, this is the essentially the protocol that you follow. Um, there was no evidence of abnormal vessel on the left side. This is not going to play, so, but it looks very smooth. All the branches are not abnormal, and abnormality is defined by uh, more than two millimeter in diameter tortuosity and multiple um, tributaries of the uh, vessel. So we did a repeat bronchoscopy when she was more stable. We had this ugly-looking lesion. Uh, This is actually the upper rope. This is the lower rope that was blocked. This is the loop of the endobronchial tube blocker, um, but you touched it, it was bleeding. So we started on a radiation treatment right away, and day three, day four, we took her for cryospray treatment. Uh, and the way cryotherapy works is it causes microthrombi um, uh, of the local tissue, and the and we were very very hesitant before we took the patient down because we did not know if the pulmonary vein was involved, and we had a multidisciplinary approach. the 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 bottom line was, if we don't do anything, she was going to die if this was really invading, and if we try something there was a chance. So after she had received five days of radiation therapy, we only did two, spray, uh, two cycles of cryospray, and three months later, she actually had a lumen of the lower lobe. But I still am worried about this ulcerated look, and I didn't do the third cycle because I'm not sure if what's underneath here. And she was doing quite well, um, so forth. So that's all. Thank you for your attentiveness. And I don't see Dan. I had a joke for Dan, but um, I'll save it. And I'm happy to take any questions. Or ask questions. I I have a couple questions. Thanks, Ashford. Um, So uh, I guess first on, just you finished up on the hemoptysis. How do you place a bronchial blocker, and what's your... When you're there um, bronchoscopically, what's your um, uh, sort of stepwise approach in, in how you handle it? So, uh, excellent question. Um, so, try to place a largest endotracheal tube. Uh, that will make things easier, uh, size 8 and above if possible. You can pass a therapeutic scope, which is an outer diameter of 6.3 to 6, depending on which scope you're using. Um, the If doing the bronchoscopy, you can isolate um, a lower lobe, then try to advance the endobronchial tube blocker into the lower lobe, uh, like distal BI or lower lobe branch. Uh, if you're not able to identify, just put in the main stem and inflate it to with air to about three to four cc's. Now, how do you drive it down? That's um, a little tricky. Um, you know my favorite saying, to turn left, to go right. I don't know if you heard that. That's from uh, the movie Cars. Yeah, so, so if you have to go right, 
in the airway, you always have to turn left. So if you push your neck further down left, you'll have a straighter path to right. And if you turn your neck to the right side, you'll have a straighter path to the left main stem. So that is one thing you want to do up front to facilitate, have a, um, a direct uh, path. The second thing is it's very easy to drive the endobronchal tube on the right side because all you have to do is turn left and drive it down gently up to 40 centimeters or 50 and make a measurement. So just to help you understand how do you make a measurement, the bronchoscope is 60 centimeter in length marked from bottom to the top, excluding the handlebar. So you can actually measure from the distal or the proximal end of the endotracheal tube to where you want to park it, and that will give you a perspective of advancing um, the tube. Now, the, the loop that I showed has to be rastered around a bronchoscope for it to be given direction and advance to the left side or the upper robe or the lower robe, and that becomes a little bit challenging, and you need a hybrid scope. Uh, you can't over a pediatric scope. And if there's active bleeding, it becomes very, very challenging. So I usually say try with the, uh, with the usual technique, left, right, and usually it should go or advance the endotracheal tube further down to one of the main stems, pass that, and then pull it back. So there are multiple ways to do it. You've got to be comfortable with uh, whichever technique works for you. It can be frustrating at times. Uh, I've spent like two hours just uh, doing that blocker and you... You, the bleeding stops, and then you come back, fit the blocker, and then the bleeding starts again, and it's like ongoing mess. Um, but the simplistically, that's how you do it. Now, the hybrid scope has an outer diameter of 4, suction channel of 2.0, and I think that works the best in terms of driving it because it's flexible. And with a size 8 endotracheal tube or even 7, you can drive both of the catheters together. Um, one should be familiar and should have an in-service on the use of the endobronchial tube blocker. Um, I distinctly remember my first use, and I was called in the middle of night um, to, for a massive hemoptysis, and uh, this was the very first time I had used endobronchial tube blocker, and I, had to, I was reading the instruction booklet and so on, and, um, uh, but, you know, we, we made it. So it's better from my mistakes to read the instructions beforehand. <laughs> So, so with uh, in a person, it's just the way I we learned in the emergency department. Say, you know, I, uh, as part of my training, um, when somebody with undifferentiated hemoptysis, um, I guess imaging would help. And you, know, you showed those uh, some of those data. But imaging would may help um, identify the side of the bleeding. Um, and then you would just say, okay, we're not even going to mess with that side. We understand that you know, there's going to be continued bleeding with limited resources or without somebody skilled in mm -hmm. um, hemoptysis management along, you know, alongside with us. So the thought would be put them on the, do a lateral decubitus position on the affected side um, being down. It just let it flood and in, in preferentially... Um, you know, ventilate and oxygenate the good side and to preserve that. So it, um, I guess in the undifferentiated patient without those resources, it, um, you know, right, readily available, would you recommend something like that? And, um, so um, I always say common sense never gets published. Um, <laughs> and uh, what you're talking, so I think the basic stuff that I never talked about is um, do you push put the bad side down? Yes, um, in, in, to temporize things. The, I, I think I want to go a step further saying, can you isolate that side to preserve some of the oxygenation and ventilation? And the, one of the benefits of an endobronchial tube blocker is to tamponade. And I don't think you can achieve the tamponade or overspilling if this is uh, brisk bleeding from either side, right or left, and then you'll have the even though it's a dependent, you'll form a clot in the trachea, and that will be your nemesis in the next few hours. Um, coagulopathy, addressing that, uh, correcting it. Um, having, um, putting the bad side down in an undifferentiated bleed while you're waiting to support the, or getting the right studies done, all those are uh, important. And um, to touch on both the perc trach or um, cricothyrotomy, um, 
peritotomy uh, discussion and the homoptosis. Can you briefly touch on tracheo-nominate fistulas, the big fear of... Yeah, so um, so next time I'll put those slides. Uh, so um, the tracheo-nominate fistula happens um, when you have uh, either a high-riding innominate vein or a low-riding tracheostomy. More commonly, almost 80, 90 95% of it is the row riding tracheostomy. Uh, if people go below third or fourth ring and somebody has a short neck, the innominate vein crosses underneath that and then the, there would be a, a mechanical friction eventually eroding into the, um, and the pressure causing necrosis and eroding into the vessel wall. The reported deaths from tracheonominate fistula um, Again, these are the reported, not the unreported, where they had the autopsy and things like that. Um, many of these had uh, tracheostomy going through seventh or eighth ring, and uh, they did not use bronchoscopy or endoscopic visualization to say the neck is extended, and in an extended normal neck, there could be as many as seven tracheal rings above the sternal notch. So um, in a paralyzed patient, you could actually go um, up to seventh, eighth ring, and when they flex the neck back, it's a row riding trach, and then you run into that issue. There are very few cases where you have an aberrant vessel, either a, a, a thyroid artery that is going midline, that causes bleeding, but that's not the nominate fissura. More commonly, it would be um, or an uncommon condition where it's a high riding nominate vein or uh, separate nominate veins crossing over that will cause that. So um, that's why the best recommendation is to do second and third bronchoscopic visualization, uh, or if you're doing an open track, you know where the cricoid ring is. So, and what's the time frame when you should be suspicious of that? And is there a point at which you can that suspicion should go down? So, um, if you lacerated it, you'll know it right away. But in general, it will be three to four weeks. M many patients will present with sentinel bleed, so a mild amount of hemoptysis in a patient who is recovering well should raise red flag and you should call or get a CT neck before the catastrophic bleeding happens. So um, just remember it's, uh, it could be yeah. that soon, yeah. Is, and just as a reminder for some of the folks that aren't familiar, you know, with massive hemoptysis, it's not the blood loss that kills you. Yeah, right. so it's that's the, gonna be part of my joke book. Okay. <laughs> yeah, so I commonly see People talk about CBCs stable in the, and we have talked about attending rounds. Patient came with hemoptysis, and they go on and on and on and on for, um, we did HNH, and, uh, you know, CBCs for GI bleed, platelet counts is for any bleeding, but uh, HNH has no value because they're going to die if the bleeding continues in, uh, from asphyxiation, and you only need 150 cc of blood uh, in any healthy adult to um, cause that. So... Yeah. Good point. Yeah. Um, any other questions? But that's not asked on boards either because okay. it's common. No. It's asked on rounds. Prepare <laughs> yourself. All right. Okay. Any Thanks. other questions? Thank you.